0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered your purchases made
0: through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's
1: Robin Hood. Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood.
0: And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two
0: comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black
0: Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness,
1: and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play.
0: We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash Originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get
0: the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash Originals. I'm Pete Wright, and I'm Andy Nelson, and this is the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Silver Streak is over. It's time to get nasty with nasturtiums. George Caldwell is taking the Silver Streak to Chicago. First class, yes,
1: sir. Right this
0: way. He's a busy publisher who's taking the train for one reason only. I just want to be bored. What do you publish? Oh, mostly nonfiction. Cookbooks, how to do it books. It's very interesting. Are you married? Divorced. But in the next three days, he will fall in love. He will witness a murder. And become involved in a bizarre international intrigue. From an innocent passenger, George Caldwell will become a victim, a man who will be forced to risk his life in order to save it.
1: Hold that! Don't move or I'll shoot! the you shot him. All right, mister.
0: Just keep your hands where they are and we'll have no trouble. He will make a friend. Andy Nelson. Hi. Happy holidays. Hey. We're doing this is a Colin Higgins series that we, we are. are now. This is our second movie. We're in deep now, you could say. At least ankle deep into our Colin Higgins series. And uh, I will open the bidding with I deeply enjoyed Silver Streak. All three movies that are crammed into this one, I enjoyed all three of them. What did you think? How did, how did it hit you?
1: I, I had a great time. I, I had never seen this film. Um, I feel like it's one of those movies where you see bits of in... You know, highlight reels of, you know, comedies or uh, wilder and prior uh, moments, things like that. I just feel like there are elements that I have seen from this film, but I had never seen it. And I think that uh, that Colin Higgins and uh, director Arthur Hiller really captured a great kind of uh, thrill ride uh, that has some laughs, but really just kind of keeps moving in the thrill uh, aspect uh, and the genre. And I thought they did a really great job with it. I mean, I the the comedy with Gene Wilder throughout this film just worked uh, really well for me. So I had a, I had a really fun time with it. Now they were were trying to, or
0: at least Higgins has said that he was trying to do a Hitchcock esque thriller on a train, right? right. Uh, that that was also a comedy. And and in an interview, he said, you know, uh, I I I always wanted to get on a train and meet a blonde. And that never happened, so I wrote a script about it. And I think that's right. really charming. Uh, now, for whatever reason, I think he's he's a funny guy. Now, the question is, does he deliver on the Hitchcock-esque thriller part? Like, did you find yourself suitably uh, Hitchcocked?
1: I think so. I think it's the the, the sense of a... Uh, An everyman who gets into a situation way above his head, much like North by Northwest, and uh, and has to kind of figure out what's going on and how does he get himself out of this, this situation that is much bigger than he ever expected. I think, um, you know, it's a comedy... So I think it plays a little more for the laughs than necessarily creating a real interesting mystery. But then again, North by Northwest also is, you know, like once you figure out the puzzle pieces, it's not really a mystery. It is just a thriller as you kind of learn what's going on. Yeah. And so to that end, I think Higgins does a good job of kind of blending the comedy, but creating a situation that, I mean, I think you could take the comedy out and it still is a pretty thrilling film. You know, you still have a pretty straightforward through line of the journey for this character, George, as he gets into this situation and has to now try to resolve it because how he gets tied into it.
0: I would suggest that it's for much of the movie. It's not funny. Right. And that is, I I think, one of the things I find. So strange. Like when he gets on the train and you you you're right. The the setup of this everyman kind of a uh a- a uh, scenario. He's just one. He's just an everyday publisher meeting the the strange kind of wonderful people that you meet on the train. And some of them are not so wonderful. Some of them are kind of creepy. Um, and, but <laughs> still, you know, the the comedy is not overt comedy. I find the meeting with Ned Beatty funny because Ned Beatty is so gross in the movie, <laughs> right? And that's what makes it's like that sort of the the humanist humor that that is. Uh, it's it's funny because it makes me uncomfortable um but but it's not the overt kind of comedy that you would expect from a from certainly from wilder and knowing what he's capable of he he has that same kind of um uh, I would say Al Pacino level 11 where he he can go full crazy. We saw him do it in The Producers. We we've we've sort of seen that side of him. We don't get that here. He never goes off the rails completely. Uh we get to see him be the the straight man in a number of scenarios where he could have played much more broadly than he did. Getting thrown off the train, he he really plays those sequences pretty straight for a a Gene Wilder comedy. I think this leans heavily toward thriller more so than outright comedy until, you know, Richard Pryor comes in.
1: I think there's definitely something to that. And I think the comedy that does come in is just it's it's it ends up kind of being some situational comedy. And a lot of it is just reactions. Yeah. Like when watching Gene Wilder, when he gets thrown off the train and his reactions to it, I had me in stitches just because it was such a great reaction. As he's just like, ah, not again, and he gets up and he tries to run for it, but doesn't quite get there to get back on. And it's just, it's so funny, especially the second time. That one really just, uh, I just <laughs> couldn't get over that. But uh, which
0: and was that was the one in the mountains? Was that the one where he gets he gets hit by the train arm, the yeah, light arm, right. and, yes, and he gets that, swung yeah.
1: off the side of it and falls. <laughs> 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 and just his reactions on his face as everything is happening is just so funny. Um and I and I know, yes, it's it's largely not pushed as just a straight-up comedy, but with him in it, that it just there's that level that allows him to kind of play the scene for play, I I guess I would say play a fairly straight scene for a few chuckles, you know, and I think that's the that's the key here in not just it's just not a straight up comedy, but it's allowing for the funniness of certain situations to come out, which I found to be a real kind of just a bit of excitement that I enjoyed with it. Do you, do you feel like you were
0: influenced by any of the uh, films that have come after it, the prior
1: and the yeah, prior, the prior wilder, films prior that have, the wilder prior
0: films that have come after
1: um, Did that I, impact your expectations? I don't think so. I don't think I've seen. Have I seen all of them? I know I've seen. Um, brah, I'm trying to remember what they are. Um, what's the one where one of them is blind and one of them is deaf? See no evil, <laughs> hear no, no, no evil. Hear, see no evil, hear no evil. Or I, the other yeah, so I, I've seen that one. I've seen. Uh, are er, stir crazy. And Which was which was really kind of the legendary, you know, pairing, right? That was the one. That's really the two of them from start yeah. to finish. Yeah. Like that's where that started. And I think that there's that that's definitely a fun one. Um I what's what's the other one that they've done together?
0: Stir crazy, another you, see no evil, hear no evil, and silver streak. I have not seen another
1: you nineteen ninety one. Oh, wow. I, yeah,
0: I couldn't, I clearly could not have pulled that out of a hat.
1: That was one I don't think I've heard of. Interesting, interesting. Another you, a formal mental, also his name is George, a former mental patient and pathological liar released from a hospital, mistaken for a millionaire uh, brewery heir by a troop of actors. And uh, I think it just goes on from there. Okay, interesting. I hadn't heard of that one. Huh, interesting. But you're right. I mean, this is where kind of that pairing, the comedy duo, is really formed. And mm-hmm. I think they work really well together. They became really kind of the first interracial comedy duo, which I think was uh, pretty big and important for the time. And I, I don't know. I just I felt like their comedy blended really well together. And uh, it was just it was fun seeing seeing kind of them. uh you know, riffing off of each other once they really kind of uh, start going. Like, as soon as you see Richard Pryor pop up in the backseat of the police car that Gene Wilder has stolen and is driving off with, uh, and just their conversations and their reactions with one another, I mean, you can tell, like, they are two comedians who know how to how to kind of work with each other's comedy beats. And it just fit really nicely.
0: Check me on this. My understanding is that uh, Pryor's expanded role was, or I should say that Pryor's role was accidental, that uh, in fact, he, he was written in as a cameo and that it was going to be the police bit and ended up being so successful and funny uh, that it, his role was, was broadened
1: uh, as a result of what they were getting on set. Uh, is that does that check out um i didn't see that but i i can't say one way or another if that uh if that was accurate but um that would be interesting if that's kind of uh the way that it was originally uh put down
0: well it would. i i think so too and and you know what i wonder is was the what part was the cameo bit supposed to be because you know i couldn't help but kind of try to unpack this as i'm watching it the the funniest sequence between them is the bathroom scene and it is uh it's a little bit hard to watch but i cannot i i just can't contain myself watching gene wilder uh in the hands (laughs) <laughs> like putty in the hands of Richard Pryor. It's very, very funny. And it deals with that just sort of, uh, contra- you know, playing on the edge of that controversial racial humor. Is, was 1976 a, a period in which blackface was okay in a comedy movie like this? Uh, because I'll tell you, it was hard not to laugh the way they did it.
1: It, you're right it was and it's it's one of those tricky things like does that work um to and it's it's i mean obviously it's in here because the fact that it is an interracial pair that we have here if it was just right. two white guys you wouldn't be able to get away with it even right, in 1976 right. i think it would be pretty hard hard to uh to make work um i think because it's richard pryor who is putting Gene Wilder into blackface to help him get past the cops. And, I mean, Gene Wilder himself, or I should say his character, George, is uncomfortable with it and and having Mm -hmm. to go through with it just to get by these police I guess it works in context of the story. It's still, I mean, it and it's funny because Gene Wilder is so over the top at at being terrible at what he's doing. It still makes me wonder, it's like, gosh, is it is it okay to kind of have these scenes in here still? I mean, it's 1976, is it is it just not work anymore? Is this not a movie we should recommend anymore? I don't know. I feel like it was something that was happening. It's something that people have done. And I I feel like it's still it still plays. So I don't know. I'm really kind of torn because I, I think it is kind of funny in the way that they do it.
0: Where do you stand on watching it with your kids, for example? Obviously, your kids might be at a place where they're not quite even ready for much of the movie. Maybe they are. I don't know. But, you know, is that a sequence that you would let play for your kids?
1: I mean, that's a good question. Um, I uh, I mean... I think that we would probably watch it, but there, you know, we'd, we'd have to have a pause in the film to discuss, you know, what, what he's doing and, yeah. you know, the kind of the history of what that is. Because, I mean, it's, you just don't even see that in, in stuff anymore. and right, so right. You definitely need to have kind of have a conversation to kind of spell that out a little bit.
0: You know, I I wonder. I was not, you know, nineteen seventy six. I was not tracking Richard Pryor and his comedy. You know, I was not, uh, I was I was not following him until much later. And So I'm I am not. I don't have any sort of internal awareness of what kind of comedian he was at the time. Given the sort of brevity of his role in this film, it makes me think that if you know he was, uh, this was at the the sort of beginning of what he was what was evolving as his comedic personality um but he ended up being a comedian that pushed a lot of boundaries right and pushed on across a, a, a lot of lines um you know i even watching him doing press for this movie uh watching him do the the a bit on carson um you know carson uh brings this up in the video he says here in the clip he says uh you know you Notably, use the n word in your um, in in this movie. Uh, how do you feel about that? Do do other African American entertainers, comedians, do they give you trouble? And he says, absolutely, they give me trouble. And he says, what do you say to them? He says, I tell them to get the f out of my face. Right? I just I'm not I don't engage. I don't say a thing. Um, and and I, you know, I I watch that. I think, well, that's a that is a an elegant uh, sort of comedic diversionary tactic uh and for for a comedian that pushes boundaries, that makes sense to me um he's also a guy who immediately when Carson asked if you had seven million dollars to make a movie, how would you do it and he immediately says i 'd make the whole thing with midgets he says i'd make it with midgets because they're little people and they eat half as much and It was <laughs> like that hit me hard like that just is is just not it's not backed by any sort of story point. <laughs> <can make> sense <laughs> Come on. Uh, so I, I don't know. in 1976 is the kind of, as you say, it, it actually makes sense in the context of the story. And it's it. it Wilder's performance is just so funny. I think they, they, you know, effectively dodge some early criticism
1: to yeah. me. It, it holds up. Well, Ugh it's definitely a if i mean it's definitely in here and you definitely you know, when it hits you're like okay well they're doing that now um, yeah. but i mean yeah yeah i think they work through it in a way where you end up feeling like okay it it played in a way where it it you know it, it ended up working i guess i'll just say.
0: The, the thing that is that i find interesting though are there any other moments in this movie that you find is so dated Right. That that are potentially offensively dated with the comedy, with the comedy. Well, and I I guess I should I shouldn't limit it. Were there any other elements in the movie that were to your eye as potentially offensively dated as this
1: bit? Well, I mean, there is I mean, we do have another character who just straight up uses the N word when he's calling out Richard Pryor's character. Right which you know i mean he is our
0: antagonist he's the bad guy we expect him to do bad guy things
1: yeah well and there's another guy there's a a, a guy i can't remember when he's uh stealing the car oh yeah that's that right. guy too yeah. um so there so it it uh i mean I, I guess it that just honestly speaks more to the time that it was still pretty common for people. Uh, you know, it's not just the South. It's, I mean, this is, you know, a trip from LA to Chicago. So we're smack dab in the Midwest and it still is something that people are saying. And so it's just, it, to me, it's just, it, it's more of a sad reflection on our times that, yeah. that people were still saying that. And uh, it just, um, so, I mean, it certainly wasn't something that was playing for laughs, but it's, it's definitely in there.
0: I, I know you've been waiting for this. I know you've been waiting for it all along to call me out on the thing that I hate the most. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, when it happened, I was like, well, I'm going to have to cross this
1: bridge. (laughs) Yes. yes, But it's in in all fairness, we're talking about the, the trope that Pete really hates when they say the name of the movie in the movie. When somebody actually has to say it. In all fairness, it's the name of the train. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Kind of. Totally they say okay. it several times. Look, there's the silver streak. Yeah. Right. Of course, they're going to say it because they're calling out the fact that that's the train and they're trying to get back. I on. will so, say, so,
0: as as hard as I was listening, at no point did they say, look, it's Silver Streak, the movie. Like, then it was <laughs> that would have crossed the line. No, this
1: is, I, 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 I just, heard I it. I, I noticed it. <laughs> because Dean okay. Wilder, like the second thing he says yeah. in the movie. <laughs> it's like, it's part of me. Streak. But is this the silver streak? You know, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> Oh, it just I was like, oh, there's Pete's favorite thing right out of the gate. Yeah. It right, did right. it did make me think about tropes though, and I wanted to chat with you about tropes for a little bit because there are quite a few tropes that I think we can talk about with this film. And I think in context of Colin Higgins, who I think is a a fairly, you know, clever screenwriter. I think the way that he puts his scripts together and his characters and uh, you can subvert things a little bit. Um, but it does seem like there's an awful lot of tropes in here. And I think this is something that we'll probably continue to see definitely in the next film in a foul play. Um, but in this particular film, I just thought, hey, let's let's look at some of these tropes. And and then I guess the the thing is, like, Were these tropes in 1976 or were these tropes uh, that just kind of have become tropes because people like Colin Higgins were using them so smartly at this particular point in time and it became something that became really common?
0: That's a that's a really challenging question, I think. And I don't I'm not sure that I. (laughs) I don't feel like I have the research in front of me, but i I will say the the first one, which is this the idea of the circle of misunderstandings, right, right. Um, it, and and if we're talking about the same one for me, it's the sequence where Wilder sits down with the the police chief and is right. trying to get the story out. Right here's here are all the pieces and places who shot who who shot her, and and that I I think is a longstanding trope. Essentially, it's just a, a re- revision of uh, who's on first. Uh, you know the old uh, who's on first bit. Uh, it's it's a vaudeville gag, and uh, it has the same sort of rhythm and meter and. Tempo and uh, I think it played very well in this in this context
1: uh, for me. It was hilarious know. in this film. Yeah. as as saying. He's, <laughs> he's just like, well, well, who's who's uh, you know who's this person? Oh, he was killed too. So there's three bodies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, there's three <laughs> dead bodies. Then who you know, shot him? <laughs> well, I did <laughs> with a spear gun. <laughs> it plays for laughs, and you're right. You're probably right. It is just standard comedy, and and this I think. To our point earlier, this is definitely a scene that plays for the comedy more so than just the straight up thriller right yes
0: absolutely, and, and this is where the comedy starts to to where we start to sort of lean into the comedy too right that this is this whole uh, we it it hits a fervor in this late second act to third act and and it's I, I think is interesting I blame you know, prior's involvement at this point in the movie, even though he's not in the scene, (laughs) it just feels like it's taken a turn, like a, 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 well, a tonal turn and it becomes the second movie. In the trio of movies that exists in Silver Streak. And and I like it. I think it's actually managed well. But it, I can understand how, how people might watch this movie and feel like it's a bit jarring. It starts out at such a slow burn, and then it becomes this more uh, sort of uh, progressive comedy. And then it turns into you know a a full on blockbuster action movie at the end and uh and so i i think he manages higgins uh you know by way of of these little mini narrative arcs to string them all together in a way that keeps momentum up it doesn't uh, and and it builds the, each sequence builds well on itself to uh, to get us to the end but that's that's definitely a thing
1: that's really coming into play because you have clifton james in that scene I, I, you know i mean before we get Richard Pryor, who does kind of keep that comedy going, Clifton James is there and, and he was very in a lot of comedies right at that period of time. I mean, he had a very comedic character in a few of the James Bond films before and after this, that I think, uh, became a little bit, um, I actually, I guess it was just before this, but it was, um, uh, his character was over the top and obnoxious and I think was kind of a definitely a sign of the times of some of the Roger Moore, kind of the comedy that they were playing in the James Bond movies. But I mean, definitely like his films that he was doing at the time were very much comedy and that mm-hmm. kind of that sheriff comedian that he played so well in the Bond films, it felt like he was just right back into it with this particular character. I agree with that.
0: Uh, Second significant trope, which I think, if nothing else, makes for an incredible opportunity for a sat-mat list, is cops bringing the non-cop protagonist along to the the ride. And I love that you picked this out (laughs) because it is so accurate. And not only do they bring the non-cop protagonist... The sequence where he has the gun and the police officer throws him a box of shells and says, here are your shells. That I I (laughs) mean, talk about end of an era. That's not something that we would that we would see again today. But it feels to me that that was something that was significantly of its time.
1: Well, of its time, but I mean, (laughs) I think going along Right back to Hitchcock and North by Northwest, which I feel like this pulls a lot of or a lot from. I feel like, again, you have this this agency that has Cary Grant's character stay as a part of this because now he's kind of this mistaken character and they kind of almost force him into it. And so I think it works really well. So
0: And, and, you know, really, I mean, if you expand it beyond cop it's really any uh, figure of authority and presence in a in a a scene that brings somebody who really normally shouldn't be there and i immediately like we just saw knives out and we have a a guy who's a detective and he's constantly bringing the other people along everywhere they go they're bringing he's bringing other people along police are always carrying other people around uh so that's a it's a lively
1: trope and i think that would be a fun one to to play with Uh, what else you what else you got This is one, I think, that I'm curious where this one started, but where your protagonist and this character that he kind of meets at some point on his journey uh, is joining in. And then he says goodbye to that new friend who leaves only to have that friend rejoin him right at the last minute to help save the day, just like Han Solo does in Star Wars, which, uh, you know, comes out a year after this. So I feel like that has definitely become a trope, and it's like the last-minute friend back to help sort of trope.
0: Yeah, the the the, the, guy, the guardian angel uh, trope, right? That this is the save the day uh, thing, and it, maybe that's the piece where they they wrote Prior back in uh, because he was so great. I, I yeah, don't know, well, but it, it definitely in this movie it feels awkward to me. That he is the saving angel here, the the that helps because he literally comes out of nowhere, right? It is a it's almost a jump scare when prior or when uh, uh, Wilder turns around and nearly you know he has his gun out and they have a jump moment together. Um, It's it's very awkward to see him back there again. I mean, they play it off fine, but um, it it's not necessarily
1: earned. It was it was one of those things because I was wondering when he left. I'm like. Is he going to come back? And if so, what's going to be his excuse? His excuse, right. The excuse was a little lame, you know, like, oh, you forgot your wallet, which I guess he had picked his pocket at some point because he was a thief, which I thought was a little strange. And, yeah. and he's like, you're a terrible thief. Uh, you know, so I'm like, OK, it's a little weak, but it didn't bug me too much. I was fine with him showing back up.
0: And the uh, a fantastic ticking time bomb that is the runaway train.
1: Runaway train. Absolutely. Um, Which weirdly, like the thing that I immediately most go to, which isn't a train at all, but I feel like it was totally playing with this very trope is uh, is airplane. Um, because you have the the plane at the end as he's trying to stop it you know, before it uh, it crashes and so uh, but yeah runaway trains I mean there's a movie called runaway train because it is a whole trope of you know these trains that people are trying to stop before it crashes into something
0: <laughs> what was that what was that movie that train movie that you it was the train it was a runaway train what was that called. <laughs> <laughs> also, Unstoppable or Broken Arrow or Money Train. There's a extensive list yes. of runaway train. Didn't you just do a Buster Keaton series?
1: Wasn't the general the whole thing was a runaway train? Well, it's not a runaway train. He's trying to yeah. catch them. You know, they that's stole his train. Right. And that's then true. They're chasing him. Yeah. Yes. I guess that's it's a little true. back and forth. But yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would that would be another uh, actual uh, uh, fun list to talk about. <laughs> just runaway, great runaway train movies, uh, unstoppable train movies, starring Chris Pine.
1: Uh, but well, and I guess they're not really runaway trains. I was thinking of the Taking of Pelham One Two Three, but that's not yeah. really There's not there's not a train that's. Uh, but even Speed, look at Speed. Yeah, the train speed. ends up. Uh, you end up with a runaway train at the end of that one. They should just call it Trains Run Amok. Yes, they should. That's it. Whether they're running or
0: chasing, <laughs> they're just they've run amuck.
1: So this will be something to continue to look at as we go. Because I, I don't feel that Colin Higgins was abusing any of these tropes or overusing anything. You know, I I I feel like it's fine the way that it all plays in this film. Like I didn't have issues saying, oh, so overdone. And I think that speaks to either his screenwriting or the fact that it felt like in 1976 this probably wasn't overdone yet. Mm-hmm. So but it'll be interesting to see as the series continues if we see more and more tropes popping up or uh, if it's just something that is just kind of uh passed through this film.
0: Can we talk about Ned Beatty for a minute? I <laughs> I love Ned Beatty so much. Is it does he overdo it here and and I'm asking asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Are, are you, uh, were you debating, these come on lines are pretty clever.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was it. Uh, yes, I, as I was taking notes, detailed, detailed notes about the movement of the train. Uh, is it, is it okay that I laughed at that?
1: Uh, do you go all the way? Yeah, Right. You know, his lines were a little much, uh, but honestly, (laughs) the best part about it was that uh, Jill Clayburgh came right back at it with it, with more of them at the end. And are you hot? It's just great. I enjoyed (laughs) their pairing very much. I had a great time watching them. This was uh, the same year he did Network, one of our favorites. Yeah, that's right. It it
0: was funny just how he's He's an interesting sort of chameleon character, right? He didn't, you know, and and I think you could say the same thing about watching him in this movie versus watching him in network that you'd say about uh, even him in the first half of this movie and the second. Right. When we discover that, in fact, he's been undercover all along and um, that he's not the guy we thought he was. He uh, for some reason, this goofy guy uh, can he, he sells it for me. I had no problem. Uh, buying that twist, going from the undercover guy who was playing such a broad character, it felt like an agent would, you know, an agent in a broad comedy movie would do. Like, I, I didn't have a problem with it.
1: I I didn't have a problem with it, but it did make me question it later. Um, You know, going, OK, why is this guy like is well, OK, I take it back because it was Hilly and he was hitting on her yeah. because it made sense because she was the secretary to the, um, the main guy that had these, these Rembrandt letters. So, right. so I guess it makes sense that he's hitting on her. It's just, it's odd that he does it in such a, a way where he's almost like with another guy, kind of showing him, this is how you do it. Watch me in action. And he goes, and, and he kind of does that as a way to kind of show, so George, check me out.
0: But I can sort of see how he would get there. Right. Because if he is trying to come up with an excuse to get close to this woman that he needs to get close to, it makes sense that he would come up with some sort of a stupid plan to do it, like a kind of an overly public way to machine himself into a relationship. That's actually not the problem I had with it. The problem I had with it is that. If his intention is to get close to this woman, why would he go to her and use such terrible strategy, like such terrible lines to to build a relationship with her? Lines that are virtually guaranteed to get you shut down. Why would he do that? Like, by all rights, it's Ned Beatty that this movie don't, should be about.
1: But don't you feel like every every era has. It's yes. <laughs> pick up lines that you're like, is that really what people said? Like, I, I feel like every era has some lines that are like, God, I can't believe people use that to come on to somebody. You know
0: what? Worst movie pick up lines. There's another list.
1: We're just full of they're just raining the lists Yeah. Today. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. <laughs>
0: you're right. Uh, how fun was it to see? Speaking of, So Ned Beatty, we got check Ned Beatty. And then we get the evildoers. And at the top of my list of evil evildoers is uh, Richard Kiel. How great. I
1: loved seeing him pop up here. Um, and they, and, and they,
0: keep, they keep calling him dumb. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so great. Everybody regrets inviting Richard Kiel. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, well, and it's funny because I see him and instantly I think of Jaws. Yeah. And my head... In my headcanon, that was like the first thing he did was Jaws and everything came after that. But then in looking him up, I'm like, oh, the Jaws was after this. Movie. Yes. And that threw me because I'm like, oh, they surely they cast him in this role because of Jaws. But it's just it's <laughs> funny how your brain works that way.
0: Which actually works really well, because that's the subversion of Richard Keel as a performer, that he was in this and he was the regrettably, uh, like, towed along assistant who keeps making mistakes and killing people. And then, uh, you know, the Broccoli see him and they're like, you know who would be great? Let's really turn this on its ear and make him the big bad. <laughs> That'll be perfect. The henchman. Just perfect
1: it's actually it's a, it's a great group of villains and well this let's let's just chat about the, the kind of the villainy here I mean it's I mean how did they work as a team for you I mean we've got uh, it's uh, Patrick McGowan as Devereaux heading uh-huh. it up and then we have uh, Ray Walston as Mr. Whiny which is just a great name and uh, Richard Keel as Reese and um, what's the other guy that we have I'm forgetting his name was that Stefan Girosh
0: Garage, yes,
1: yeah, Garage, who's Garrosh, uh, yeah. the? He plays the faux professor. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great little group, and and man, I tell you, I was I, if it spoke well to me that this was kind of the group of villains because it actually made it feel more like a thriller rather than the comedy, and maybe that's more the Patrick McGowan than the Ray Walston. <laughs> because yeah. there's definitely a little bit of both in here, but I just felt like with Patrick McGowan kind of heading it up, it had kind of that feel to me that there was a, a sense of a real threat here.
0: I uh, absolutely agree. My favorite was uh, Mr. Winey. Um, I I feel like Ray Walston. You know we know him from so many different things, but uh, seeing him in this one, when every time he opens the door, he's the face in the crack of the door, and he gets a different reaction every time he opens the door. It, it's either you know he's menacing in the very first one because they're they're tossing the room and he doesn't want to let anybody in. The next time he opens it up and he's confused because he thinks he's already dead. Like shouldn't you shouldn't be standing here? You were killed the other night, uh, I, and uh, he's just uh, is is such a wonderful wonderfully comically versatile sort of menacing bad guy Uh, and and he doesn't really cut the figure of a bad guy he's he's sort of a frail looking man Uh, but uh,
1: boy he he pulls it off definitely he really does it's uh and and he's got a face. The thing I like about him is that he has a face that can carry the the serious, threatening tone. So when you yeah. first meet him, he doesn't feel like the guy who's gonna be uh in you know comedy TV and whatever.
0: Did you watch a lot of my favorite Martian? Was that your was that never, your show?
1: Never. Hmm. He never was
0: apparently that. my favorite Martian. I but, never watched it either. Ran for uh three seasons. Yeah. Hundred and seven episodes. Wow! Never seen a single one. Not even Nick either. at Night.
1: I didn't even see the TV or the the movie remake or the movie not remake, but a movie revisioning, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Nick at Night. We shouldn't. We, you know, we kind of skipped over the uh, the Lady Love, our uh, our actress uh, Jill Clayburgh Here we we've mentioned her, but we haven't really talked much about her. How uh, how does she work for you in the film?
0: Oh, Andy, please. She's got the comedy bit down. Um I I think she's she plays kind of a roller coaster in this movie because what we need from her is she she needs to be like um of um sexy with integrity in the beginning, right? We get her, she turns down the vile guy, but it turns out she's in progressively interested in this other guy, and they end up sort of moving in together, right, as they move the walls down, and and it just, it felt like, as I'm watching that initial sequence when he comes in and starts taking his tie off, and, and they're kind of getting the room set up, I thought, this is weirdly, like, unfunny and domestic, and uh, and yet... Totally natural uh she just felt totally natural in that space and in control, and then, as Wilder gets tossed from the train, we come back and we meet her again, sort of from afar right because he's we're looking at her from the perspective of Wilder in other rooms across the train and i um, I, I love the way she she plays sort of uh, i would say sedated. Do you know what I'm saying? Like she she plays like she's just kind of a robot going through the motions. And as we learn about, you know, what she's been going through, we get to we figure out that she's actually she now understands she's grieving. She understands what's been going on. Um, and uh, and so that roller coaster of her being able to to go back and forth between, um, you know, sexy, integrity, grieving, and then this this sort of um, uh, agency that comes with the the, the unraveling of the plan at the end, I think is it's really fun. It's,
1: you know, this was early in her film career and soon after, I think a couple years later, she's going to be um, nominated for her performance in An Unmarried Woman. And then again, a few years after that. So it's definitely, she definitely has the chops and knows how to deliver. And whether it's comedy or drama, I think that she just, she has a very natural sense on screen. And that's what I really like about her.
0: Uh the other thing we get in this movie is just a cast of incredible uh African American porters that always <laughs> seem to dominate the scenes that they are in, right? Whether it's the sideline glances or the uh like it, you just always know that they were in on the joke first. And it it's led by Scatman Crothers as, as Porter Ralston who is as always
1: fantastic. He is always great. And it's uh, it's nice to see him popping up here, um, yeah. even if, uh, you know, his part's not as big as I want. But it's he still has some opportunity to kind of play the comedy because, you know, he yeah. thinks that he's the one who finds George over um, over um, Bob's body, uh, Ned Beatty, and thinks that he killed him. And so he's yeah. kind of like, the murderer, the murderer. <laughs> and So it, it plays pretty funny. It's it's it, there's some good laughs there.
0: I like his end bit as he gets down and kisses the kisses the walkway on the train at the very end, and it's, he's just he's funny. He's over the top. He's funny. Yep. Best part of of uh, best part of the Shining, Scam Man, That's
1: right. there. You go. <laughs> Do you? Are there any other faces that pop up? Because there's a few other faces that uh, that I see in the film that I'm like, oh, it's that. Well, uh, it's that person.
0: I, there was there was one that I I cannot let us stop talking without bringing up. It's one of my very favorite. Uh, comic actors and that is the incredibly multi-talented fred willard uh who is you know i mean he's really in the 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 sort of mockumentary crew right from rob reiner to christopher guest to uh, he's in that kind of crew of comedians he's also fantastic as phil dumphy's dad on modern family um Uh, I just uh, I think he is an an incredibly talented guy and he is so young. He was in this movie as a child, a wee child. (laughs) And uh, so I I had a great time seeing him uh, again here. Who was your favorite?
1: Uh, uh, Fred Willard was great. Also, just have to call out Valerie Curtin, who pops up in in here as she's credited as plain Jane which it's just, it's so sad that that's how they would credit her. But they certainly play that up pretty strongly in this film, you know, with kind of the the awkwardness that she perpetually has uh, every time that she shows up wherever she is. Um, she, uh, I think most prominently, we talked about her when we did Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Uh, right. A few years back in a Ellen Burstyn series. Uh, but then she was also in All the President's Men. And, uh, but, you know, it's something that I always kind of forget about Valerie Curtin is that she is a a hyphenate. You know, she has been a writer for TV and films. And so she's somebody who's always keeping very busy or was uh, at least it looks like she hasn't really been doing a whole lot anymore, but uh, she was keeping pretty busy on both sides of the aisle.
0: And an Academy Award nominee for that, Uh, that I I had not made that connection that uh, that she was nominated for Injustice for All, writing that with uh, her then husband Barry Levinson. Uh, very talented. Funny, funny, funny placement in this movie.
1: Should we, do we have any more to say? We've talked about Arthur Hiller uh, somewhat recently as we had him in our last series, in the Steve Martin series. Was there any more, anything else that you felt was, uh, uh, was worth talking about with him in this particular film? Mm-hmm. This was a few years before he did our, um, the film we talked about with Steve Martin, which was The Lonely Guy.
0: Yeah. How does this one compare to The Lonely Guy for you in terms of tone and pacing? Did you feel uh,
1: a sort of, uh,
0: what we say, spiritual connection between these two films?
1: I don't know if I would say that, but, um, uh, or maybe I would, because uh, Colin Higgins, I think he said, about this film that if he had directed because we know as we talked about on Harold Maud last week that Colin Higgins was looking to direct he just was only seen as a writer and, and as much as he was trying to direct they he didn't have quite enough clout yet and he said about silver streak later in his career that if he had directed it he would not have directed it just as the writer wrote it and he felt that which is funny because he wrote it but um and but he seemed to feel that that uh, arthur hiller pretty much just directed it straight off the page as it was there and uh, just kind of you know warts and all put it all out there and it, it, i don't know it made me sound it made it sound like higgins felt like in the finished film it was what he wrote, but he seemed to think that there were probably ways he could have fixed some things to make it even stronger as as mm-hmm. if he were directing it. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting, but I definitely felt like that could be said about uh, The Lonely Guy, you know, that yeah. it felt like it, it just was probably just straightforward directed exactly as it was uh, put down there. You know, that was the same
0: comment that Pryor gave of working with Hiller, which was, you know, normally he, he said, when I do a, a bit, like when I'm going in to, to do a film, uh, they tell me, you know, it's your it's your turn. Here's your scene. Go ahead and do it. And there's just a lot of improvisation that he's used to. And this one, uh, there was none of that. Every word that came out of his mouth was exactly as it was written on the page. And he said that was a very strange uh, experience hmm. going in and having that um, um, a- a- having do having to do that kind of work uh as an actor, somebody who's so leans so heavily on his um, comedic improvisation. Um I, I kinda get that sense, but for me, this movie actually worked better than Lonely Guy, uh, which I I, I would I mean I certainly would attribute to the strength of of the script. I actually think that it was it was written well, competently. Uh it has um, strength even in its sort of wandering um as it wanders into the second act and uh I I found it uh, more compelling than Lonely Guy interpretation of the Lonely Guy uh material.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I I definitely um I'm in that same camp, and I think it is just the script. And I mean, I I think I ended up enjoying Lonely Guy yeah. more than you, but yeah. um, but still, this, I think, is still the better experience between the two films. And it's interesting that, that Richard Pryor said that because he would come back to work with him and Gene Wilder in yeah. See No Evil, Hear No Evil.
0: Your mileage may vary on
1: that film. Right, right.
0: I want to call out David M. Walsh behind the camera. And I, I think in terms of, you know, David M. Walsh and, and Alfred Sweeney and production design, I, I think the camera was handled very well. And movies, as we've discussed, movies on trains are hard. Uh, you know, most of this was shot on a train in Canada going across uh, a part of Canada. And it's hard to figure out how to use the train in a way that. Uh, actually, makes sense and doesn't get you confused and loses a sense of place. Uh, when we talked about uh, Murder on the Orient Express, there were so many shots that were like security camera shots to, in order to, it felt like force your reattachment to where we are on this tight uh, in in this tight experience. I didn't have that problem. The only time I would say I would I was challenged was figuring out when and where they had opened their two compartments between their bedrooms and when they hadn't. Uh, the the dance between the two doors that opened between uh, compartments, I, f- I felt like got a little lost in the shuffle. But overall, I feel like it was it was shot very well.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that, that holds very true. Uh, you're right. It's, it, you know, doing the whole sort of thing where you're getting around to train and everything. They do a great job here. And it always, I, I feel like we're ch- chugging along. They do a great job of making me feel like we're really kind of traveling from LA to Chicago with these guys.
0: I appreciate your use of chugging along in this movie. I played. <laughs> ah. Well played. Uh, Stunts by Mickey Gilbert. Uh, Mickey Gilbert's stunt coordinator was also Gene Wilder's devil. What do we think of Mickey Gilbert?
1: I just wanted to call out the stunts in this film because uh, this was what what I found really interesting as I was watching this movie is I kept looking at these actors and going, that's not like I can tell. Like I'm staring right into the face of Gene Wilder. And he is hanging off the side of a moving train, and Richard Pryor is holding on to him. And I can tell it's Richard Pryor, like, we're close enough where I can see that these are the actual actors. And so I've been trying to find, like, were these guys actually doing their own stunts? And sure enough, this was something that I guess—I honestly don't know if it was because of this or if it was just something that Gene Wilder had, uh, you know, had found— Uh, in context of what he was doing but you know he had heard how buster keaton would do his own stunts and and uh so they ended up kind of doing a lot of their own stunts on this film and so when he is hanging out the door trying to uncouple the train going 50 miles an hour with richard Pryor holding on to him by his belt that's really what the two of them were doing and and uh, Wilder says the telephone poles went went past a lot faster at 50 miles an hour than they did at 10 miles an hour because uh, they were rehearsing at 10 miles and then shooting it at, at 50 miles an hour. That's um, crazy. I know. And Richard Pryor was just like, you know, he's just he said I'm thinking one slip of my foot and goodbye Gene. But uh yeah, they they just uh really kind of put their mind to it and, and did all this stuff. So, like, I mean, you see them on top of the train. You know, they're sometimes moving across the tops of trains and all this stuff. And it's, like, really uh, impressive. So I, I'm curious now, you know, how many scenes did uh, did he actually need to have his stunt double yeah. step in versus actually doing some of this stuff himself, which is uh, really impressive.
0: That it, it is crazy. The, like, getting as close as they got to the trains to shoot a
1: lot of these scenes made me deeply uncomfortable. I'm not crazy about that. You got to keep your distance from the trains, people. It just, watching this made me, I instantly in my head, when I'm seeing train scenes now, I I go right back to the scene. I think we talked about when we're doing the good, the bad and the ugly and we have Eli Wallach as he's trying to like, you know, on, he's trying to do something right next to a train that's yeah. that's moving and there's a little bar that's hanging off of the train and his head if his head was like six inches higher that little bar that you could barely see would have totally just killed him yes but like uh, he happened to be yeah got would have right. gone right through his head <laughs> but luckily his he was low enough where it didn't hit him but he's like putting his life in yeah in uh you know The hands of uh, of the crazy director, and so you got
0: to ask yourself: Is the movie that good? Is the movie that good? Is it going to be worth it? Yeah, is it going to be worth it? Uh, And music by Henry Mancini.
1: Oh, Henry! I I know everybody always thinks of uh, Pink Panther with Mancini, Um, but this is the theme for this is one that I feel like I've just heard a lot, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's something that has come up before, but every time it. It kicks in, I'm like, oh, this is that theme. And so I feel like it's maybe a theme that has been used in some montages during the Oscars or something. I just don't know. But it's definitely a theme that I had heard before. And uh, it was it was never released as a soundtrack at the time. It wasn't until 2002 that uh, that it was finally released. So strange that it took so long to release the soundtrack for this one i
0: i I really i haven't listened to the soundtrack all at at once but i did have a a thought as i'm watching the movie that the it feels like that it wasn't terribly consistent like he was all over the place it felt like very much like um um i don't know maybe butch and sundance like it was just tonal like the 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 soundscape the, the musical scape would change pretty dramatically in tone uh from scene to scene and it gives a, just a wonderful sort of playground for mancini to to play but going from jazz to orchestral to all, all kinds of of great things as he's sort of echoing the style of whatever's going on in the movie but um it's it, it's not um john williams-esque right it doesn't give you uh you know a consistent vision of of what's going on in the movie throughout
1: yeah, but it does, I, I, what I did like is the, at least when it was the main theme, it did kind of have a chugga-chugga-chugga yes. chugga sort of beat that kind of worked well with the train. <laughs> I like that. I did.
0: I like that. That's touching.
1: <laughs> uh, how to do a reward season. Uh, You know, it's not the sort of film that's going to get a ton of awards, um, but it did have a few nominations, no wins, four nominations at the Oscars. It did get nominated for Best Sound, and I think that speaks to kind of probably all the train work, especially the big crash at the end. It did lose to All the President's Men, which uh, we've talked about on the show before and how great that film is. Gene Wilder did get nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical, but lost to another one we've talked about on this show, Chris Christopherson in A Star is Born. How does that fit you?
0: Very strange. I wonder if Academy voters were asked today to make that same choice, what they would make.
1: I feel like it's because he was uh, going through a dark time, and that's certainly something that voters like, is when a character is in a downward spiral and having a hard time getting out of it. Yeah, yeah. So, I can see that. Yep. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Richard Pryor was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Jason Robards in All the President's Men. And the WGA uh, fittingly nominated Colin Higgins for Best Comedy written directly for the screen. But he lost to the Bad News Bears, which uh, I haven't seen in ages. I remember it pretty fondly, Um, but I, I don't know. I, I'd have to rewatch that one to really, really say whether yeah. it deserves to win or not. I liked it bad news Barris. i
0: had a blast with that movie but i'm with you like i remember it with the eyes of a child and right, uh, right. It, it's tough to tough to see if that stands how about uh how to do with the box office they make back their seven million
1: well hillers film based on higgins script cost six and a half million dollars to make which is about 29.2 million in today's dollars The movie opened December 8th, 1976, opposite another movie we've talked about on the show before and just mentioned, the Streisand Christofferson A Star is Born. This film was a huge success, but not as huge as its competition. This film did end up as the 8th highest grossing film of the year, however, earning just over $51 million, or almost $230 million in today's dollars. That gives the film an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.7 million. A great turnout for Hiller, Higgins, Pryor, and Wilder, and a great start for the Pryor wilder pairings to come well
0: this was a a terrific way to continue our series of colin higgins movies i feel like we're getting we're getting lucky andy getting lucky
1: or we picked well or we (laughs) maybe could you say we've learned (laughs) we can be taught or yes we can be taught (laughs)
0: <laughs> did Colin Higgins ever do a Robin Hood movie? That's what I want to know. Did we miss anything in there? Uh, I think this was a, a great and fun experience. It didn't um uh, it, it didn't blow the doors off of my flick chart, but uh it it did it did well for itself. So I'm excited to see how the uh how the ranking turns out. Are you ready? I am ready. Head over to flickchart.com/slash the next reel. Really, you'll see all the movies we talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap Flick Chart, it'll take you to this very movie where you can
1: add it to your own catalog and see how it stands up against ours. Andrew? All right, uh, dropping it into the mix. We've got Silver Streak or The Lion in Winter. Which do we prefer? it's um, a tough start, because I yeah, feel like The Lion in really Winter is really uh, the one that should win here, because uh, I, I feel it's probably the better film.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. I think I'm going to go with The
1: Lion in Winter. I just hate dropping Silver Streak into the bottom half of our list here, Yeah, but what are you going to do? It's, if it streak ends or... up at the
0: top of the bottom half, Andy, the top, top of the, of the bottom. bottom half.
1: Top of the bottom to you. All right, Silver Streak or Stripes. Silver Streak for me. I'll give you, I'll give you Silver Streaks. Silver Streaks.
0: Silver <laughs> Streaks.
1: Or as apparently it was called in Spanish, El Expreso de Chicago. Excellent. Silver That's Streak one of those or... <laughs> jokes that just doesn't hold up in Brazil. <laughs> no, right. Silver Streak or Princess Mononoke. I got to go Mononoke. Oh,
0: really? Yeah, Mononoke.
1: This is, I guess we've talked about a lot of good movies. Yeah. That's a good thing. Silver Streak or The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, the third of the Stieg Larsson trilogy. I think <sighs> I could go Silver Streak on number three. I do, too. I'm going to say Silver Streak. Okay. All right, Silver Streak or Julie Andrews in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Wow, I got to put myself back into that. It was a very cute, very clever film, but I think I'm going to go with Silver Streak.
0: Yeah, I think Silver Streak has it. And you know what we didn't even mention? Uh, The action movie sequence at the end of Silver Streak with the runaway train and the fact that the train does actually destroy part of that station
1: and oh, that a our bad that. guy gets like beheaded yeah I, <laughs> I was right. like woo there goes yeah. the comedy out of this movie I think that uh, that earns a, a win over Millie any day alright Silver Streak or The Roaring Twenties Bogey and Cagney I think I'm still take uh, Wilder and Pryor yeah I think this, I will yeah. too mm, go figure look at that Silver Streak or Russian Dolls I'm gonna take Silver Streak yeah Silver Streak please Silver Streak or Pennies from Heaven from our last series with Steve Martin. Silver Streak. I will take Silver Streak as well. Silver Streak or one from your favorite series, Oceans 12.
0: Oh, Oceans
1: 12. Oceans 12 is the one I like the most out of all of them. I'm going to say Silver Streak. What? Yeah. I'm not as big on the Oceans movies as it's you are. It's
0: not even worth the fight, Andy. It's the holidays. <laughs>
1: are you saying I all need right. to give... No, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's see how I do it. All right, here we go. All right, one. Oh, he's warming up. He's warming up. <laughs> one, one, two, two three. three. Rock, Rock. paper.
0: Scissors. Grr, you always get. Did you know that paper always loses to scissors? Do you know that? Every time. You would think that
1: I have forgotten that, apparently. <laughs> Well, luckily, that was our last ranking, so Silverstreak only beat it by one spot, so you're OK. Silverstreak ended I'm sweating up sweating <laughs> a little bit.: I'm actually sweating after that. You know. That I get to feel it. Oof. Oof. Uh Silverstreak landed in spot 272 out of 433 on our chart. That is unfortunately relatively low for Silverstreak, yeah. which I think is much better, but it's at a 37 percent yeek. Where does that hit on your personal chart? Definitely higher than that. It landed at 847 out of 4261, which is about an 80%.
0: Mine uh, actually dropped uh, in at 431 out of 1428, which is a 70%. And uh, if I'm going by the algorithm uh, at letterbox.com slash the next reel, that should be a three and a half star. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that's fine.
1: It's a it is a four star for me. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. yeah.
0: I did too. I really enjoyed it. But again, like I said, I'm saying. Like it didn't blow the doors off uh of my flick chart. I watched it at the end. I'm like, I'm gonna watch this movie again and I'm gonna share it with some people because uh it's actually it's good. It's funny, it's adorable. But I think I'm gonna stick with the three and a half star. We'll see how it how it ages up.
1: Yeah, and I, I'll see I how it ages too. I I didn't
0: have this ranked before. It was uh, it was I just hadn't gotten to it. So sure. uh, I don't know how it would have changed, but it it fit. I think it fit my memory. It lived up to my memory. I was not disappointed by rewatching it.
1: Gene Wilder is what makes this film for me. Like, yeah, just watching him was just a treasure. So I had a great time. So I'm OK with the four star. It may it may drop a little bit over time. Um, I can't see it really going higher. Uh, you know, I feel like that's a pretty good, comfortable spot for it. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so where does that take us from here in our Colin Higgins series? We're going to be looking at his next film with Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase, a 1978's Foul Play. And this is where Colin Higgins finally gets to start directing.
0: So that changes things. That changes the tone of things. I think now that we get him in the director's chair, I'm excited to see how this how this shakes up. Has he right, learned anything, Andy? Has he <laughs> learned anything?
1: I guess we'll find out it's next a 6.
0: time. 6.8. 6. Mm-hmm. out on the IMDb star scale. So apparently, people think it's good. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. <laughs> Amazon giveth, Andy.
1: As Amazon always doeth. Thought I was going to get you.
0: <laughs> Amazon uh, Amazon did giveth a, a little bit, but it turns out a lot of people actually like this movie. And of those who didn't like the movie, a lot of them just hate the release. The Blu-ray. They have issues
1: with, with, issues, uh, with uh, release yeah. or getting the wrong format or they're not paying attention and they click it and they order the digital instead of. A DVD, you know, and they did this movie. And they then they give it a really one star complain. because of that.
0: Yeah, real complaints about this. Oh, people! Uh, but but we did uh, we did find some at, down right around the bottom of the barrel. We scraped, we scraped hard, and uh, we found a couple. You want to go first?
1: I will go first. My first is by Liz, who says slow, not funny, and too much cursing. Not funny, and definitely not PG. Today, this would probably be rated off for the cursing and sexual language. I was looking for a family friendly movie, and this is not it. It's also extremely slow moving. As for the quality of the DVD, you can't put on the closed captions, which is also a drawback. I'll be donating this one.
0: <laughs> you know, who needs a movie that you think so poorly of? Charity. <laughs> Yeah, right. Nothing like nothing says the holiday spirit uh, than uh, like a donation of a movie that celebrates blackface through comedy. <laughs> Enjoy Goodwill. Uh, I came up with one from uh, Right Good Reviews. It says, "Terrible, really." I watched this as a kid and thought it was pretty funny. Wow, this movie is utter garbage. I mean, really bad. I am just shocked that I sat through it when I was younger. I fast-forward most of the movie. Mm, utter garbage from Werner.
1: I can't wait to, like, in, in a year or two from now, I can't yeah. wait to hear how your Werner your has, has shaped shapen.
0: That's good, Andy. I, that's good that you bring that up because I think you can say it's. It, it, for speaking of roller coasters and runaway trains, such is my Werner impersonation. I mean, <laughs> week to week, really, day to day, is a different guy. Different guy, lots of variation.
1: That's great. That's just so great. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022.